Hello, people of God. We're in John chapter 5 this morning, and if you want to be with me there, page 864 for our teaching today. I want to start with this, uh, this little, I guess, example, this little context for us. I, I know some of us have questions about the truth of Christianity and the truth of Jesus and the truth of the gospel. Maybe not all of us, but some of us. We hear people say things like, the Bible was written so many years ago by men, by a bunch of people. How can it be true? And the Bible is filled with all these contradictions. And, and, and the Bible doesn't have the facts correct. I mean, it seems to even talk about the world is flat, right? How can the Bible be true? Those are our questions and maybe even comments that people make. And if you hear that often enough, especially from people that you trust, you start to say to yourself, I can't believe the gospel. I can't believe in Jesus. And today's story is actually, today's event is actually one example. Let me give you a little of that background. Jesus walks into Jerusalem. Every year there were three Jewish festivals. And all the men within 15 miles were required to attend. Many men from much further, greater distance, would also attend. We don't know which festival this was. And we hear that Jesus went to this pool by the Sheep Gate. Now the problem is, this pool is really unique. It says it's surrounded by five covered colonnades. A colonnade is basically a porch, right? You've got pillars, roof. Now, five porches. Think to myself right away, five porches around a pool? That's either a really interestingly shaped pool. Have you ever seen a five-sided pool? There's a reason we build four-sided pools, right? They're really easy. Or, or uh, this, there's something weird going on here. I'm not the first person to think that. A lot of people for lots of years have thought that. And part of the reason is, beginning in the 400s, Christians and many other religious people, Muslims in particular, built churches on the famous sites of Jerusalem. And so, especially through the medieval times, there were hundreds and hundreds of, of sites, religious sites, all over Jerusalem that covered over all of these ancient spots. By the time the 1800s came about then, and we were really interested in the history of this situation, people were saying things like this. This is Alfred Adersheim, who is one of the most famous historians, Jewish historians of the time of Jesus. He would say, this narrative transports us at once to what, at the time, seems to have been a well-known locality in Jerusalem, though all attempts to identify it or even to explain the name Bethesda have hitherto failed. Whoa. Do you get what he's saying? Do you feel it? He's saying, well, sounds real. Let me tell you, we can't prove it. Doesn't say, we don't think it's real. He's saying there's a place in Jerusalem, but we can't, we can't tell you it's real. Or you can read a, another man, 1905, a man named Masterman. He wrote, the pool of Bethesda is one of those biblical sites about which there is a wide difference of opinion 
Although in recent years many have been tempted to accept without a doubt a site which has little to support of it but very unreliable authority. The fact is we have very scanty materials from which to identify the site and we are never likely to be certain. Again, wow, get it? Sounds good, sounds real, this story, but we can't prove it. And you might say to yourself, ah, it's just one pool. It doesn't matter. But what happens when you are sitting there and you read page after page and line after line of the Bible and it says, this is what happened. And somebody says to you, well, tell me about that. And I say, oh, I don't know, I can't tell you. Was there a pool? I can't tell you. Is there Bethesda? I can't tell you. Were there Jewish leaders? I can't tell you. Was there a Sabbath? I mean, right? You do that enough and you start to say to yourself, I can't believe the Bible. I can't trust this thing. It's just a nice made-up story. It doesn't even make me feel good most of the time. <laughs> That's the issue here. Now, if you're a person who cares about facts, if you care about history, right, if you care about reality, at a certain point, that starts to bug you. Let me tell you, though, what people say about this site and this pool these days. Here's one comment from an archaeologist. The archaeology activity of the Franciscan fathers of the Church of St. Anne has been a corrective of older views, as well as the means of clarifying where the pool actually was. Their research has shown that the pool of Bethesda is to be identified with the excavated ruin in the St. Anne courtyard a ruin with two pools of considerable size. Arched pillars originally bordering the two reservoirs were covered intact with 25 to 30 feet of debris. Wow. Or if you go on Wikipedia now, here's what Wikipedia will tell you. It is now associated, this pool, is associated with the site of a pool in the current Muslim quarter of the city, near the gate now called the Lion's Gate or St. Stephen's Gate and the Church of St. Anne. Wikipedia is certainly no friend to historic Christianity. And yet if you read Wikipedia, it will say this site is associated with the pool at the Church of St. Anne. What changed? Well, in 1888, an archaeologist named Conrad Schick went to this church. And through various events, he started digging around in it, and he discovered the pool. And he found this pool. It's a very unique pool. It's built in two levels. It has an upper level and a lower level, and it looks something like that. And look, how many porches does it have? Five, right? If these were combined on the ends, excuse me, if these ones here are combined, one, two, three, four, five. Five porches. Very unique pool. Now you might again say, it's just a pool. It doesn't matter. And yet, we have reasonable evidence to say it was this pool at this time and this place. And archaeologists who had spent their entire lives committed to researching this issue changed the way they thought. That's what God does. He is committed to taking out the falsehoods, the lies, the unbeliefs, the doubts, the fears of our lives, and replacing them. And that's what 
leads us into the real meaning of this event. So take a look with me a little more here in John chapter 5. Jesus goes to this pool. There are countless lame, blind, disabled, paralyzed people there. One man is there who is has been there for 38 years. Think about that, 38 years. That's me. An entire life. Have you done anything in the last 38 years? Like anything at all? Do you get out of bed? Do you roll over? Eat any food? 38 years. You know, Return of the Jedi came out in 1983. As long as the Return of the Jedi has been out, this guy has laid there. Wow. That's that's a long time. That's a long time. And when you dig through this story, then there's even more. They went to this pool because they thought they could get healed. Supposedly, their archaeologists tell us there was an aqueduct running underneath this pool and it would bubble up sometimes. The, the idea, the myth was that God sent an angel to stir the pool and the first person into the pool was healed. Before you say that's crazy, Think about how many medicinal or medical things that somebody else believes that you think are crazy today. I feel like we've kind of gotten to the point where there's people who think going to the hospitals and and modern medical treatment is crazy and you should stick to just natural treatments. And then there's there's plenty of people who say natural treatments are, are crazy and so you should just stick to the hospitals and the medicines and the doctors. Now you think, if if we're stuck at that point, maybe they weren't so crazy, huh? Maybe. It's easy to think they were something that we were not. What I want you to start to do is you've got to put yourself in the shoes of this man. It gets even more. You've got to read it's more of that. This man is a paraplegic. There's a, a doctor, Dwight Peterson. He gave a little lecture at the Society of Biblical Literature uh, uh, some years ago. He's, he, too, is a paraplegic. And he described in great detail what life is like to be a paraplegic. He's talked about how, the, the, especially back then, the problem was both physical and social. You know, he said, remember, if you're paraplegic, your, your bowels don't work properly. Your bladder doesn't work properly. This man spent 38 years lying in, in himself because he has been shunned from society. In Jewish society, people who were unable to uh, be clean and go to the temple were isolated. They were ostracized. They were not treated like everybody else. This man lay there for 38 years, all in his own stuff. Can you, I mean, not just the, 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 the sight, right, but the shame, the horror. What would be running through that guy's mind? God, why would you do this to me? How could you let me sit here like this? How could you let this happen all the time, over and over? And it's even more than just that, because Jesus comes to the guy and he says, do you want to be, get, do you want to get well? And did you hear what the man said back? The man said, I have no one to help me into the pool when the water is stirred. Now, I don't want to dump on the guy. I don't want to dump on the guy, but he didn't answer Jesus' question, did he? Do you want to get well? Yes or no? But what did he say? Nobody else is helping me fix my problem in life. 
He, he considers himself, again, he, he's a paraplegic, so you don't want to be too picky, but what is he doing? He's obviously passing the blame to everybody else. He's got one chance here to see somebody who can actually fix his problem. He says, do you want to get well? And he won't say, yes, just yes, I want to get well. And there's a question there for us, isn't there? How many of us, when we get asked, do you want to really deal with the sin and the problems of your life? You're like, well, my family, my dad did this. Or, you know, society, this is just common practice. This is the way we all behave today. Or, well, you know, it's the only way I can get ahead in life. Do you want to stop doing things that are wrong? Do you want to get well? Are we going to keep playing the victim and the playing the blame game? And it's even more than that, isn't it? Because if you read, keep reading along in this section, man, again, I don't, want to, I don't want to dump on the guy, but you get to the end of the section, Jesus sees him and he says, see, you're well again, stop sinning, or something worse can happen to you. Now, again, think of just what Jesus is saying. Jesus has healed the guy. He's well. He's right. Everything is good. He's physically okay. And where is he at the end of the section, verse 14? He's in the temple. He's been reintroduced into society. People accept him. They treat him as one of them. And still Jesus says to him, stop sinning. What's he saying? This is the first time in John that Jesus accuses someone particular of sin. Right? This is the first time in John Jesus says, you have sin in your life. And he says it to a man who was a paraplegic, but is now walking in the temple. And he still says to the guy, stop sinning. We know he doesn't blame this man for his sin. If you read on in John, there's another time where people come to Jesus and they say, who sinned, this man or his mother? And Jesus says, neither. He doesn't blame the guy. So what's the issue? Stop sinning? Hasn't the guy already gone through enough? Hasn't the guy already experienced enough? Jesus is concerned with something particular, isn't he? You have to really read through the details. As I chewed through this story this week, and I, and I read through this, Jesus sees that the guy does not see God. The guy doesn't see God, right? He stands right in front of him, and he does not say, I want to be well. God stands right in front of him, and he does not say, Lord, rescue me and save me. He stands right in front of him in the temple, and he doesn't worship God. He doesn't offer sacrifices to God. He doesn't go to the priests and ask for forgiveness and life. He just hangs out with people and says everything is okay. This is what it is to really be sick in our souls, right? This is what it is to really have a soul sickness. The Bible has two kinds of pictures for sin, two different categories, okay? 
that help us understand sin. And the first one is to understand sin as a state. To understand sin as a state. And the second one is to understand sin as a condition. Condition. What do I mean by that? Well, if you read through the Bible, there are lots of times where the Bible uses sin and says, you're living in darkness, or you're living in death, or you're living in blindness you cannot see, or let's see, what else is there? You're in the old life, right? Now, what are those things? Those are states. Those are, this is the way you are. But sometimes the Bible also describes sin. It pictures sin as a condition. It's an infection that lives in us. And there you see sin, last week we heard it, right? Sin is described as what? As thirst. We're just thirsty. Here sin is described as sickness. Or we see often that sin is described as confusion. It's a condition that plagues you and perplexes you. And if you're going to understand sin, then you have to get that sin is both a state and a condition in our lives. Look at this story, right? On one level, this man is, is totally, I, I think you could say, he's totally innocent. I mean, we would look all, who would look at this story and say, this is a bad guy? You know, it's easy. You quickly read over the story and, and you think, okay, Jesus meets the guy. He can't walk. He makes him well. That's the end of the story. Good job, Jesus. Bottom line, if you're sick too, pray to Jesus and he can make you well. Is that the message of the story? That's not the message of this event. That doesn't dig into it enough. Right? The message of this event is that sin is a condition that corrupts us. And just like we first saw Nicodemus go from darkness to light, that's moving out of the state of sin. We also need to move out of the condition of sin. Let me, let me give us a little picture of this. Let me see if I can help us kind of start to, to grasp it. I know a lot of you have gardens. You like gardening. I enjoy gardening as well. I plant a garden and I say, the garden is good. God has, has made this garden good. It's a blessing. What a wonderful thing to have this garden. But then you have to start weeding the garden and you have to weed that garden and weed that garden and gosh darn it all, if you don't keep weeding it, the weeds keep coming back, don't they? You're going to spend the entire summer weeding the garden. And that's what God is picturing for us about the human condition. It's one thing for God to come to you and say, let there be new life in you. You are forgiven, you are restored, you are alive in Jesus Christ. That is the gospel. It's also another thing for God to come to you and say, it's going to take the rest of your life to pull out all the weeds of the sin in your soul. We got to pull them all out one at a time. We got to take you out of the thirst. We got to take you out of the sickness. We got to take you out of the confusion. And friends, that's what God wants you and I to take from this story. Sin is a condition. It is a sickness. And when we get that, then we can see that Jesus says more than anybody else in our lives, stop it, sin. Stop it. Not just you stop. I am going to stop the sin in your life. Just stop all of the sin. There's this beautiful passage 
in the Gospel of Matthew where Jesus says that he takes our infirmities on himself. He takes our infirmities and he bears our sicknesses. And if you look at the Bible, if you read the Bible stories, one thing you notice is that Jesus is never sick, is he? He never has problems in his life, right? He's never got a cold. He's never got the sniffles. He never gets a flu. He never does anything else that seems to show that he's sick at all. And so you start to say, how did he bear our sicknesses? How did he bear our diseases? The answer, of course, is he died. He died on the cross, right? Whatever else sickness does to us, it kills us. Whatever else that our infections do to us, they kill us. Whatever else might happen to you and I because of cancer, because of heart attacks, because of strokes, eventually we die. And Jesus went to the cross so that he could carry that sickness onto himself and put it to death. One of the things that the Bible loves to do is to picture putting sin, getting rid of sin in your life as putting it to death. That's how it pictures sin over and over and over so that God can say to you, yes, my gospel is a promise to you that you have eternal life, that you have heaven, that you have a new home. But you know what else the gospel is for you? You're a garden, and I know that sin messes up your soul. But I'm going to weed it. I'm going to weed it every day. I'm going to weed it and weed it and weed it until I can stop, until you can finally get into glory and you can say, all of the sin has been pulled out of my life. Because Jesus loves more than anything to say, stop it to the sin in your life. So what do you and I do about this? One of my favorite movies, and I, I told you this I, I, I quote this movie to you guys so you, you know it, right, is, is Tolkien's The Lord of the Rings. There's a, a great part in one of the earlier episodes where the hero or the, the, the great wizard in the story, his name is Gandalf, has to face this massive evil devil spirit. It's called a Balrock, called a Balrock. And the Balrock comes out of the deep. It's kind of like pictured that he comes out of hell. And Gandalf is walking with his friends on this platform, this bridge to cross, and the Balrog comes out and hops on there, and they have this face-off. And Gandalf pulls out his, his sword and his spear, and he says a great line to the Balrog, to this evil devil. Anybody know what it is? You shall not pass. Friends, that's what this story tells you and I. Jesus has stood on this bridge so that he can say to that devil that comes into our lives, you shall not pass. And the, the story even goes further because Gandalf falls into the great pit and he ends up dying and he does battle with the devil forever, just like your Lord and your Savior Jesus does. But he wins the battle so that he can stand there on that pit, on that bridge and say, you shall not pass. The last thing that Gandalf says, though, to his friends before he falls is, fly, you fools, fly. He means, run the other way. Friends, what do you and I do when sin comes into our lives time and time and time again? You run the other way. Why do we persist if we know that our souls are like a garden where the weeds keep growing? Why do we persist in letting ourselves sit near sin? Why do we persist in sitting in places where sin can easily get into our lives? Fly, 
you fools. If Jesus has stood on that bridge and he has said, you shall not pass sin, stop, then you and I need to run the other way. You got to hear these last words, stop sinning or something else worse might come to you. Yeah, there is an evil end to all things. You and I can avoid it. Stop it. Stop sinning. Because Jesus has stood on that bridge and said to sin, you shall not pass. You cannot get past me. You cannot get to Pete and Steve and Jane and Fred. You cannot get to you. You are safe. Now run the other way. Don't let your soul be a garden filled with weeds. Flee it. Put it to death. Tell that sin to stop. I pray for that for you and for me. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you have told sin to stop, to run the other way. You have stood on the path so that it runs away. Now teach us to, to flee as well. Teach us to flee sin, that it will not grow up again in our lives, that we would be healthy and good, godly saints before you. We pray for this in Jesus' name. Amen.